From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, non-steroidals and cystoid macular edema. The risk, the underlying risk of getting a poor visual outcome from cystoid is pretty small for an individual, 5%, possibly less, possibly more. But if you think of 5% of all the cataract surgeries that are done all over the world, that's many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people getting poor outcome. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Wormald declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. When cystoid macular edema presents after cataract surgery, ophthalmologists often turn towards non-steroidals. These medications are observed to work slowly, but since CME is often self-limited, the question arises, are NSAIDs really doing anything at all? Richard Wormald has just published a systematic review of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for post-cataract CME in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, and I'm delighted to have him as my guest today. What causes post-cataract CME, or CMO, as you say in England? I knew. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's one of the big questions um, that are yet to be properly resolved. And I think that this review is pointing to really a lot of uncertainty about what's the cause of it and what we can do either to prevent or treat, but in particularly this case, to treat it. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a pathologist. I'm, I mean, I'm, my expertise is in looking at the evidence that's out there rather than um, being able to hypothesize about um, pathological mechanisms. I'm not the right guy to ask that question to, really. I mean, uh, there's, a met- there's, there's a bit of stuff in the background about what um, is thought to, to go on, um, but it's pretty limited in, in, um, in the paper published in the BJO. We go into a little bit more detail in the Systematic review published in the Cochrane Library. Why have non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs been proposed for CME treatment? Uh, as well, I understand the theory is to be based upon an inflammatory mechanism, which leads to a breakdown of the blood retinal barrier in the macular area with the accumulation of extracellular fluid around the, um, the photoreceptor uh, and in the pigment epithelial layers. But um, there may also be other mechanisms, mechanical mechanisms, which are at play with disruption of the, the vitreous body or change in dy- mechanical dynamics within the eye, which um, may be re- responsible also, but lead to the same thing, disruption of the blood retinal barrier. 
So then why have NSAIDs been proposed uh, for treatment of cystoid macular edema? I would imagine because of the anti-inflammatory action. Uh, I would imagine that's why it was thought that they, might, they may be of some benefit. Um, uh, whereas the pr- proposal to use drugs like acetazolamide were more on extracellular uh, fluid control or pump mechanisms, I think. Has a systematic review of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for post-cataract CME been published before? Yes. There was a review by Rossetti um, and others published in the Journal of Ophthalmology in 1998. And it's an important review. It was a big, it really was a much more inclusive review than this one in the sense that they, were, they, were, they allowed in just about all the trials that had been done. Um, there are many more trials in that review than there are in this one, but that's because they really didn't apply any quality filters into what got in. But of course, the main conclusion of that review was, well, there are a lot of studies that indicate there may or may not be effect. Many of them were underpowered, small studies. But when you put them together, it suggests that there might be an effect. We went on to do the Cochrane review because we felt that it was necessary to apply more stringent inclusion-exclusion criteria to the in terms of the quality of the studies that will get in there. Uh, what is Cochrane methodology? Well, um, Cochrane methodology is, is one used by, and, and, and if you like, developed and elaborated by um, participants in the, in the International Cochrane Collaboration, which is a, really a large international um, group of motivated individuals who, who, who rose to the challenge which Archie Cochrane and put to the medical profession back in the 70s, saying it's really crazy that there isn't a database uh, out there for all clinicians to be able to access, which provides up-to-date information of the best evidence available of effectiveness of interventions in healthcare. So that you know, if we want to know whether something works or not, we can go and look in this database and see all the, all the relevant trials summarized systematically to tell us what we know or don't know about how well things work. It provides, if you like, a source for a kind of of top-of-the-line information uh, about effectiveness. Filtered information, plus often, as is is the case in this article, there's quite a strong indication for the need for further research. Parker methodology is, 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 is centered around systematic searching of the international literature. Uh, without language or um, uh, or any other uh, global restriction on on or time restriction, say on on data, but then applying quite stringent quality criteria about what evidence is admissible into a systematic review, and it's usually only randomised controlled trials or quasi-randomised contro- randomised controlled trials, and where a number of them can be found and that can be appropriately put together in a meta-analysis, and that's what we do. We do uh, uh, a meta-analysis of the trials that are, that are essentially sufficiently homogeneous, uh, asking the same question, same intervention, same population, same outcomes. The Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, which is published on the web um, and also on CD-ROM on a, uh, a quarterly basis. The, the, the other point about the Cochrane Collaboration's output is that it's published electronically, and the reason for that is that it, it, it's this enormous challenge to keep things up to date, because almost as soon as a, a, a traditional review article is written, 
there's been new studies come out since that that review article comes out, which means that it's out of date. Um, and so, in this day and age, with this hugely expanding, rapidly expanding volume of uh, biomedical literature out there, we have to we really have to have some system of processing it. So that's what the Cochrane Eyes and Vision Group tries to do. It's an enormous task. Basically, people who do reviews are volunteers. They take on the task. We support them uh, from our editorial base at the London School, but we also have collaborators. Now, the Bates and Johns Hopkins, uh, Terry Dickerson and co, uh, have, have an NEI grant to develop Cochrane US Cochrane Eyes and Vision uh, review group activity in the US, and it's growing quite quickly now. One of the problems with doing any sort of meta-study is variability in the definition of the, the pathology and variability in the studies generally. How has CME been defined generally in these studies? You're always trying to find the right balance between being kind of meticulous about including studies which are essentially looking at exactly the same kind of problem uh, to be more inclusive to say, and, and say, well, we're not too worried about whether there's more variations in case definition between the different studies that took place because basically we want to know, looking from a higher overview position, whether or not uh, you can pick out any effects uh, overall. So the uh, actual definitions of, of cystoid in the, in the trials that were reported in this review are probably available uh, in more detail in the, in the review published on the web on the Cochrane Library. I think we were basically um, inclusive to say that we would, would take in both uh, clinically defined and, and geographically defined disease, but we're more interested in the primary outcome here, which is about visual acuity, since that's what matters cystoid may or may not be there, but if it's not affecting vision, it's not really a great concern. However, it does affect vision in, a, in quite a significant amount of... So we focused our outcome measures on... Um, uh, our primary outcome measure on, on, based on visual acuity. The diagnosis had to be made clinically as, the, as, the, uh, as it being cystoid uh, that is the cause of uh, reduced visual acuity post-cataract surgery. That would probably be, broadly speaking, the definition that would have been inclusive. How did you identify studies to include in your review? Well, there's a process of uh, running uh, electronic uh, searches using uh, chosen keywords, which include um, various versions of of the word cystoid, macular edema, spelt with an O and an E, (laughs) and uh, all the various... uh, types of intervention that might be used, plus uh, terms for randomized control trials. And we, uh, the electronic search has generated a list of about, uh, as we reported here in the, in the paper, 382 possible studies, um, which had to be filtered. By looking at abstracts, we could identify um, 17 um, reports of trials that we need to look at in more detail. Ten of those ultimately were excluded. Um, because many of them were actually about prophylaxis rather than treatment. Um, in fact, there's a separate review going on looking at prophylaxis, one for prophylaxis and one for, for treatment once the diagnosis has been made, with slightly different indications. So that was the process of, of searching. Uh, it's fairly quite a bit of work to go through 
um, such a large number of reports. But it's the only way you can be sure that you've really been unbiased in selecting uh, the evidence that's out there. Did the studies lend themselves to meta-analysis? We managed to... Uh, you, probably... Um, we've included seven studies in this review, but um, some of them are for... Uh, in the interventions were for, for acute cystoid post-cataract and others were for chronic. So the, the meta-analyses were split up um, in that way. Although I think, in fact... Um, we only managed to, the forest plots presented in the paper are for four trials for uh, treating uh, chronic cystoid um, with an outcome of visual uh, a vision improvement, visual acuity improvement at the end of treatment. And uh, the other forest plot uh, is looking at, um, uh, at one month post-treatment also in uh, chronic cystoid. The trials for acute cystoid could not really be usefully put together in a meta-analysis. Can I have you describe what you actually did with these studies? Well, what we do is um, we, we've narrowed it down to these seven studies, three of which were for uh, chronic and four, uh, three for acute and four for chronic. So they're then they're, they're, they're dealt with as separate subgroups since there's separate uh, indications, if you like, for intervention. Uh, the papers are then read independently by um, two reviewers who independently extract the data uh, for the outcomes uh, of interest um, and put, put them into um, software, uh, which is developed by the Cochrane Collaboration to, to write systematic reviews and produce, where appropriate, meta-analyses. So there's an inbuilt analytic module in the software where essentially you enter N over N, a small N over big N, uh, the number with the outcome for the intervention group over the number randomized uh, uh, and, the, uh, and likewise for the control group. And the, the software then essentially constructs a forest plot and, and uh, runs the meta-analysis and also runs statistical uh, evaluations for the presence of heterogeneity, statistical heterogeneity, where you're getting widely differing outcomes in different studies which suggests that they can't really be looking at the same experiment because they're too widely different. Um, that's all part of the, of the, if you like, the, the backup that comes with the Cochrane process. Um, it allows a standardized methodology to be used. But you, I don't know if you've got the paper there, but you can see essentially um, what, 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 how that works for, for the four trials in the chronic group, the N over N, 1 out of 10, 3 out of 10. Because you can immediately then see that you're dealing with very small trials, the, 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 the line and the point estimate uh, represented graphically, again, gives you a very quick idea that with a very wide confidence limit around the effect size estimate, you're dealing with a very underpowered study. Uh, here, you know, we're, not, we're looking at quite a variable set of outcomes for these three studies, four, four studies, uh, three authors. You divided the studies into acute CME, chronic CME, and adverse events. What were the findings in the acute CME group? Basically, the finding was that you couldn't find a consistent answer to the question uh, because these, there were small studies of relatively uh, limited power, insufficient to really determine whether, whether or not there was an effect. Uh, uh, and likewise, the situation applied to uh, chronic um, treatment for chronic macular edema. So we're left, 
having, if you like, synthesized and assessed all the evidence out there, that basically we still don't know. Uh, there's insufficient evidence to conclude whether or not this treatment is effective, either for acute or for chronic cystoid macular edema, one of the commonest causes of poor visual outcome in cataract surgery, which strikes us as being, you know, as outside observers, a pretty bizarre state of affairs, <laughs> uh, and, and one that's worthy of the attention of people thinking about doing trials in, um, in cataract surgery. So let me just summarize things here. In the acute group, there was too much variability in the methodologies of the studies to combine the data. But just looking at the results grossly, there doesn't seem to be a benefit to non-steroidal use in acute post-cataract CMA. In the chronic group, you you were able to some extent to combine the data and to do a meta-study. And reviewing those results, they, they too don't seem to show a benefit mm. to well. non-steroidals in chronic post-cataract CME. Mm. Do I have that right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of variability in the results such that you really wouldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate to, although they're presented there in a the forest plot, there isn't, there isn't a, uh, a lozenge, a summary effect estimate, which is, if you like, the output of a meta-analysis. So really this forest plot here is simply graphically representing the different findings of the different studies, and it's not a, it isn't actually putting, making an attempt to, to estimate the overall effect size since there is really excessive heterogeneity, too much variability in the, in the outcomes there. And it, as we say in the, in the discussion, that can be explained by a number of different factors. Um, um, the different steroids were used in different trials. In one case, it was oral endomethacin, which was ineffective in, in chronic cystoid whereas topical phenoprofen, uh, likewise, was not shown to be, be effective, but um, titorolac was. So, you know, maybe there are issues about what, what particular preparation is used in, um, in the treatment of this disease and what treatment regime. What do you think accounted for the differences in the results of these trials? Well, I think um, uh, cystoid, of course, the underlying risk of cystoid is going to be different in different types of cataract surgery. Uh, and if you had a, um, and should, ideally that shouldn't matter too much if you have a large trial with proper randomization since the different underlying risk factors for, for a cystoid should equalize out by the randomization process, but that's less likely to be the case in smaller trials. And therefore, you know, you, you, you're wiser to try to control for um, uh, underlying uh, differences in baseline risk um, by making sure that everyone's having the, the same type of surgery or uh, people with or without uh, conflict, certain types of complications are excluded. But the trouble is the more you do that, the less, if you like, uh, externally valid the trial results become because they're only talking about a rather select group of um, people having a certain type of cataract surgery. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's a sort of pros and con issue that we really didn't have enough. You know, there's so few trials here to look at um, that uh, um, it, this, was, this was particularly more an issue, by the way, in, in the acute uh, cystoid studies um, because in, 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 uh, in, in two of them they were all un, uncomplicated phacos while, while uh, uh, FLAC included uh, uh, different types of extra capsule surgery uh, including ones that have gone wrong. So, I, you know, but actually, in a way, FLAC study is more relevant to 
to a wider audience out there in terms of variation in types of interventions that go on. And I suppose another issue in trial design is that you need to have a reasonably frequent event rate to be able to pick up differences brought about by treatment. So if you have a higher baseline risk because of complications or types of surgery in which the underlying risk of cystoid is increased, then it's probably more useful. You combined the studies to look at adverse events. What did you find with that? Do non steroidals cause problems? Well, it was uh, difficult to pick up. I mean, there's nothing, uh, another, another point here is that the, these were all small studies. Uh, the biggest study was uh, the one by Flack in 91 with uh, um, uh, get, getting on for 100 patients total. Um, and they, to pick up serious adverse event rates, you need much, much larger studies. Again, this is another criticism of the evidence, if you like, but actually uh, um, well, we, we haven't got here nearly enough uh, information to be able to make uh, emphatic conclusions about either the effectiveness or the safety of this, uh, uh, of this treatment. So um, from what we could find from the total number of patients randomized uh, in this review, I, can't, I don't recall, just 266 partitions, only one had a report of an allergy, but I mean, adverse events are doubly problematic because they're not always systematically reported in trials, in reports of trials. Indeed, you know, they may lead to the exclusion of an individual in the report of a trial because they had an adverse event. That's another major problem and unsatisfactory uh, issue about the evidence base. with regard to the, these, uh, the effectiveness of these countries. Having said that, you know, there's an expectation that they're pretty safe agents to use compared, say, to topical steroids with all the problems that we know that they cause. And there's been no mention of uh, retrocular pressure. So here's the $64,000 question, Richard. Do non-steroidals help in patients with post-cataract CME? Yeah, well, um, you know what I believe. I'll tell you what I believe, Josh, which is, yes, I think they do. Uh, and I certainly use them. But what I think is disgraceful is that we, you know, and I've tried, I've actually contacted the uh, pharmaceutical company and I entered into quite detailed negotiations with one who produces a non-steroidal and non-steroidal and saying, you know, you, you guys should be funding a trial on this uh, since you have the potential to be, uh, you know, to, to greatly greatly increase your market share if evidence is shown conclusively that this is an important addition in cataract surgery to reduce this risk. Uh, they said, well, it's just not a priority for us at the moment. <laughs> you know, they were trying to market some other drug. Uh, and, and, and it still remains the case that we don't actually know. And I think considering the number, the volume of cataract operations which are done across the world, the risk, the underlying risk of getting a poor visual outcome because of cystoid is pretty small for an individual, 5%, possibly less, possibly more. But if you think of 5% of all the cataract surgeries that are done all over the world, that's many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people getting poor outcome. And if that risk can be reduced, we should certainly be knowing more about it. What do you do in your own practice? I use them routinely in, in preoperative topical medication. We put in Voltrol with our dilating drops pre-op then um, if there's any suggestion of thickening, vis- visible thickening of the macula in the post-operative, immediate post-operative period, or the vision isn't coming up as good as
about three, three to six months. But I, you know, the other thing, of course, to bear in mind is that this, this condition spontaneously resolves in a lot of people. And so that's why there remains clinical uncertainty. There may be, a, a, if you like, a placebo effect. Uh, you give somebody a treatment, they get better. You think it's the treatment. No, they just got better by themselves. So this is a question that we still badly need to know the answer to. I mean, so I have to say, you know, I do cataract surgery like many people, but it's not my clinical area of specialism. I'm the, I work in the glaucoma service at Moorfields. But this remains a question which I often speak about when I'm talking about evidence-based practice in ophthalmology. It's, it's an issue which I regard as being of burning importance uh, that, 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 you know, that there's been our systematic review published. There's been uh, seven years ago another excellent systematic review published, and yet we still haven't had the definitive research conducted. I just think it's extraordinary. Richard, thank you very much. And thank you very much. I think you do a great job. Richard Wormald is Honorary Senior Lecturer at the Institute of Ophthalmology and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Consultant Ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. His paper, Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Agents for Cystoid Macular Edema Following Cataract Surgery, a Systematic Review, appears in the November 2005 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Wormald or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.